I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Over the course of the last six months, Pope Benedict delivered five major speeches to small groups of American bishops who were in Rome for their five-yearly ad limina visits. In his last address on May the 22nd, he warned the bishops of the threat of a season in which our fidelity to the gospel may cost us dearly. And in Seoul, in South Korea, the first date of Lady Gaga's current concert tour was marred by protests from Christian groups who forced the Korea Media Ratings Board to prohibit minors from seeing the show. Evangelization is a word very much on the lips of all Christian denominations at the moment and in Ireland, as the Eucharistic Congress draws nearer, the new evangelization grows in importance for the Catholic Church. The Irish School of Evangelization was founded by Joseph O'Callaghan, who joins us now. Tell us about evangelization and this new evangelization and what the difference is between them. The Evangelization and the word evangelization, of course, is as old as the church itself. But the new evangelization began really around the year 1983. The term was coined by John Paul II when he was in Haiti and he asked for, he called the church to a new evangelization, one that is new in its methods, new in its expression and new in its ardour, new in its fervour, if you wish. And indeed, the present uh, Pope, Pope Benedict, is also calling for a new evangelization. It's new in its inner thrust. So what we've noticed over the years is a greater emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we go back maybe a little further to John Paul, to Pope John the Twenty-Third, And when he was opening the Vatican Council, he said, renew your wonders in this our day as by a new Pentecost. Um, as Cardinal Danilu said, faith is not just belief that God exists. Faith is a belief that God intervenes. And when I read that, I said to myself, how often does God intervene in my life? And I've come to the conclusion that the new evangelization is based on an experience of God. The principal agent is the Holy Spirit. There's no evangelization without the Holy Spirit. That's why many of us are calling for a radical change in the celebration of Pentecost, in the culture of Pentecost. There's no fuss, if you like, about Pentecost. We don't exchange presents. There's not a holiday from school. I mean, are you serious? Is the church serious about Pentecost? Well, why, in your view, don't we celebrate it more? Because, now I put that question to one of our bishops in Ireland because I couldn't come up maybe with the full answer myself. And he says it was the rupture in the church in 1054 when we uh, lost unity with the Orthodox Church was lost to a great extent. And John Paul tried to retrieve this. And, you know, Pope John Twenty-Third, when he was opening the Vatican Council, he said, it is now only dawn. That was a profound admission as to where the church is at. We've moved on maybe a little bit. From, from the dawn. But what is dawn? Dawn is a time when the sun rises. There's light coming through. 
but it's after a period of darkness. And what was the darkness? Two world wars. Where was this spirit of joy? And even today, in Ireland, we have one of the highest suicide rates in the, in the 27 countries of the EU. And we have the highest binge drinking rate. And the solution is the Holy Spirit. But in fairness, with all that has happened in the church, and particularly in the church in Ireland over the last few years, the church is the last place that a lot of people are turning to. I would say to people in that situation, never give up prayer. In many people's lives, they have lost contact maybe with the church. And I have met people myself uh, who are the older age group and they've said they've walked with the church for many years, now no longer. So what I would say in the words maybe of a, a wonderful friend of mine, Father Michael Cleary, he said, how many men give up drink because they get a bad pint? Very few will give up drink. But the church is not that side alone. We have to look beyond that and say, where is Jesus in this? And I would appeal to people myself that whatever one gives up, don't give up prayer. There's another aspect where I believe the Catholic Church could improve greatly, and that is in the area of the Holy Scriptures. If the Catholic Church was to be mocked out of ten, on the understanding that the fathers of the church, say Jerome and others, had of the word of God. It could be at one, one out of ten or maybe less. The word of God is not in the minds and hearts of the Irish people. And this is a serious loss because the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness. And tomorrow night, Saturday night, in Knox Shrine, we're having a Pentecost vigil for three hours. And we're highlighting the power that there is in the Word of God and in the Holy Spirit. And all are welcome. And this is being taken by Youth 2000, a young group from Dublin that are very active in bringing people to Jesus. I'll come back to the School of Evangelization in a moment, but just sure. to talk, to continue that on the Bible and the Bible being the word of God, it should be considered as that, in your opinion, literally? Absolutely. I would have, uh, yes, the, the church's teaching ab initio from the start is that God's word feeds us. God's word is alive and active. I should stand up really, as Jesus did, stand up in a chair and shout this from the housetops. But again, many people <clears throat> currently interpret it differently. And then you could also say that there would be different interpretations today from what there was, say, 100 years ago. Sure, sure. Yeah, <clears throat> what I'm talking about really is the reading of sacred scripture in one's personal prayer life. The word of God, there are people in North Korea, there are people in countries where it's forbidden to bring the scriptures. And in former times, you may not re remember it, Eileen, but in former times in Eastern Europe, People went into Eastern Europe with the Bible and the pastor of maybe a, a group of Christians took the word of God and <clears throat> read from it. And people at the end, the conclusion of the meeting, the prayer meeting, came up and he asked, what, what page of scripture would you like? They only had one Bible sent to them that day. And the person may say, Psalm 23, please. And he would tear it out, fold it in four and say, the word of God. 
Okay, we are running out of time and there's a few questions that I still sure. want to ask you. Tell me about your School of Evangelization for a start. School of Evangelization started in 1994 as a result of a family visit to Medjugorje, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament in Medjugorje on the 26th of July at approximately 3.30 in the afternoon. And I sensed the words in my heart, I want you to start a School of Evangelization. And... Uh, from that, I took it seriously for six months, asked a number of people, and uh, we, we decided between all, the advice was to write to the Archbishop, and we wrote to the Archbishop, I'd like to start a school of evangelization, and he said, I sent back a wonderful, lo- lovely letter, please keep me informed of developments, and with a cheque for £100. So we thought it was worth stepping out. We, we our, our emphasis is to bring people to a living relationship with Jesus. What's the difference between evangelization and proselytism? We can only propose the gospel. We cannot impose. Never, ever can we ever impose on another person. Now, the new evangelization is due to feature at a synod of bishops later this year. It is. What are your hopes for the future, for that synod and for the future? Well, I would say that my first hope for the Synod is that it will accelerate the growth of evangelization around the world. But apropos of that, we have a, an octave for church unity in January. We're proposing that the church unity octave would be transferred from January to become the new octave of Pentecost. Um, our hope is... Uh, that acceleration and also plans for a university somewhere in the world, totally devoted to understanding the new evangelization. Joseph O'Callaghan, thank you. We'll put details of your website on our website. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you, Eileen. To Christians and particularly to Catholics, May is the Marian month and Sunday the 13th of May was the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima as on that date in 1917, three Portuguese children claimed that the first of a series of apparitions of the Virgin Mary occurred and was witnessed by them. The late Pope John Paul II placed great importance on the Fatima apparitions believing that it was through the intercession of Our Lady of Fatima that his life was spared after the assassination assassination attempt in 1981 on Wednesday, May the 13th, her feast day. Pope Benedict is also a great Fatima devotee. But how much do Irish people actually know about Our Lady of Fatima? Reporters Claire McCormack and Rona Tarrant went round the country to find out. Allegedly, uh, Our, Our Lady, um, or the Virgin Mary, um, appeared to three little children and that there was there were loads of atheists there who witnessed it and that there was a uh, there was something like they, they, they didn't get dry, there were all these weird things happened like they didn't get covered in mud even though it was raining um, Mary asked the girl to keep a secret I think that was the big one that was told to the Vatican and we don't know what the big secret was was it to do with the end of the world or the devil or what Fatima not much really I know it was a vision of was it Mary I'm not sure but it was one of those sort of um, visions someone had about 100 years ago maybe that's about as much as I know. Somewhere in Europe, Montenegro, Bosnia, I haven't clue. One of the girls was told, I think she was uh, sick, like she had some knee condition or something like that, and she was in awful pain anyway, this particular girl, maybe the youngest girl. There were three girls. There were two that were revealed, 
and there was one that was entrusted to some bishop who visited Mexico and uh, some people, uh, apparently there was some official announcement of what it really was but then there's some other people who claim that it, was some, that it was, wasn't revealed. Is where Our Lady appeared to three children? I believe the third secret of Fatima is out. It has, and a lot of people who may be listening may know what the third secret of Fatima is. So I wouldn't like to, like to uh, prejudge what, what they know about them, you know? That there are some people who think that the Catholic Church has become so corrupted and, uh, since Vatican II, and actually before Vatican II, and Vatican II is kind of like the... And what happened since is a blossoming of that corruption and that the corrupt church that has taken over has tried to keep the real third secret hidden didn't even know there were three secrets of Fatima, sorry. Is it the athlete Fatima Whitbread you're talking about? I don't know who is Fatima, sorry. But if they're secrets, nobody knows anything, do they? The god of Fatima, or the child of Fatima you put out, uh, if you're hoping for good weather. I don't know, that's all I know about it, really. The religious place. Uh, it's like a religious retreat place that people go to, like, on retreat to, like, I don't know, be holy and repent their sins and... I don't know. You've got um, Fatima Mountains to be the first thing that comes to mind. There's one still that has not been revealed. As far as I know, it's held in the Vatican. Um, I think it has to be some black pope before maybe it's revealed, but that might be some rubbish I heard somewhere. That Vox Pop was compiled by Claire McCormack and Rona Tarrant. The centenary of the first Fatima apparition will be in 2017 and this is a matter of great importance to the present pope. We'll have more on the subject next week. On Saturday, May the 12th, the Church of Ireland Synod finally passed a motion that faithfulness in marriage is the only normative context for sexual intercourse. This result had a mixed reception, welcomed by many but not by all. One of the people who not only welcomed the passing of the motion but seconded the proposal that it be put to the Synod was the Bishop of Down and Dromore, the Right Reverend Harold Miller. He spoke to Godslot producer Jerry McArdle. Uh, the, the Synod lasts for three days and there were three motions on the Thursday of the Synod. Uh, the first motion was essentially uh, a re-establishment of the teaching of the Church on marriage and sexuality. Uh, the second was really one that was uh, welcoming gay and lesbian people, uh, ensuring that the wrong kind of demeaning or damaging language or hurtful things were not said about them. Uh, committing ourselves to increase our awareness of the issues, the complex issues regarding human sexuality and so forth, and ad- admitting that we're all sinners, really, in the end of the day. And the third motion uh, was to set up a select committee, really, to progress the work in this particular area. Uh, these motions had their provenance in the House of Bishops and wanted to present them as a way of uh, uh, showing a way forward, establishing where we are now and and enabling us to, to see where we might go in the future. Uh, then in the course of the Synod, we conflated them into one motion so that uh, one group uh, would not get one bit and somebody else another, as it were, but the whole thing would hold together as one thing. Uh, when it was passed, it was passed altogether by more than two-thirds of the Synod. One of the things that apparently gay people have is the wording uh, that marriage is the normative way for sexual expression. Could you just explain that to me? And do you understand why gay people might have a problem with it? Well, I think the problem is that normative is used in a certain ethical kind of way, uh, and I think it also sounds to some people like normal 
Uh, of course, it's not. Uh, it says it's the only normative context for sexual intercourse. And that means that it is the church's standard. Uh, it is the right place for sexual intercourse. It is making a certain value judgment uh, on it and uh, saying this is the proper uh, way things should be. Now, of course, when you say that, you're immediately aware, and it's made aware very quickly, actually, that not everybody lives up to that standard, uh, and there's a recognition of that. But the fact that people don't live up to a certain kind of normative standard doesn't mean that you change the normative standard. So can you see a place within Anglican thinking and doctrine for same-sex civil partnerships or, indeed, taking it one step further, same-sex marriages? Uh, I think that uh, it's very clear from this resolution that uh, to talk about a same-sex marriage would be uh, changing the meaning of marriage in terms of what we believe in the Church of Ireland and uh, what has been the traditional Christian teaching down through the years. Civil partnerships are slightly more complex uh, because uh, many people who have entered into civil partnerships actually have been the very first to tell everybody rightly that it isn't the same as same-sex marriage uh, and that they are not maybe wanting even to be in a same-sex marriage situation and that the partnership may well be to do with uh, certain rights or financial obligations or commitments or pensions, all sorts of things like that. But I think the problem has been both in, the, in Ireland and in the United Kingdom that uh, civil partnerships have paralleled marriage maybe too closely uh, so that, for example, the table of who you can marry and who you can't marry is the same as the table for whom you can enter into a civil partnership or not, except obviously for uh, same-sex couples. But it carries with it very often an implication in people's minds that there's also a sexual relationship involved in it and indeed it could be construed that it was actually con uh, brought into being with that in mind. There seems to be a perception Bishop and I'll just put this to you that before the Reverend Tom Gordon and it's out there we all know that Tom Gordon entered a civil partnership with another man that before that there was a policy within the Church of Ireland of don't ask don't tell yes. everything was fine as long as you mm. didn't make an issue out of it mm. now it's out there in the open and therefore it's become a problem and an issue yes I, I, I'm not quite sure what people mean when they say it was a policy of don't ask, don't tell. Well, let me clarify what yeah. I mean by that, if, if I may. If you were to get rid of all the gay uh, priests within either the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, you'd have very few priests left. I certainly don't think that's the case. Uh, I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, but if you say that the policy is don't ask, don't tell, uh, I think it depends what that means. Does that mean that people in authority... Uh, know that somebody is living in a situation that it does not fit the church's teaching but don't do anything about it. Uh, I don't think that's certainly not the case with myself as a bishop. Um, but if you mean, uh, do you always believe every rumour you hear? Well, then that's a different matter altogether. You can't go on rumour, and there can be all sorts of rumours that float around the place. You see, saying... Again, with respect, Bishop, saying to gay people that they're welcome within the Church of Ireland but that they may not have a sexual relationship with each other according to your doctrine is, to put it this way, it's a little bit like when Cromwell told Catholics that it was all right to be Catholic as long as they didn't go to Mass. Well, I mean, we haven't, nothing has changed. 
We haven't ever said anything other than that, uh, nor have we been, in my experience anyway, nor have we we been difficult with gay people who are, uh, for example, struggling with particular issues or anybody else who's struggling with particular issues. But I think there is a difference uh, in somebody who says, I'm struggling, I sometimes fail or whatever it may be, I need to come back to uh, the way I believe God has called me to in my life. There's a difference between that and people saying, because I want to do this, uh, I'm going to ask the church to change its teaching to make it right. So is your answer to a homosexual man that you're very, very welcome, but really you must live a celibate life? Uh, I don't know what it's like in other churches, but the Church of Ireland is a church with really not only open doors, but open walls. Everybody is welcome. It doesn't matter what their starting points are. Indeed, if you put it like this, and it doesn't matter what their sins are, where they've been, what they've done, whatever. They're all absolutely welcome. Uh, worship is absolutely public. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, but when somebody is welcomed into the church, and this is true of all of us, uh, they are welcomed into a church which has teachings, which has ethical beliefs and values, and which is seeking, seeking to disciple people in the ways of Christ. I mean, that's what the church is there for. The motion, uh, Bishop, also reaffirmed the Church of Ireland teaching that, uh, and I quote, according to our Lord's teaching, that marriage is in its purpose a union permanent and lifelong for better or worse till death do them part. Does this mean now that uh, divorced people might have a difficulty remarrying within the Church of Ireland? There are three different, uh, as it were, aspects to marriage as understood in the Church of Ireland. I mean, one is that it is between two people. The second one is it's heterosexual. One is a man and one is a woman. And the third is it is in its intention lifelong. Uh, that intention is not, uh, cannot be evidenced at the moment of the marriage, but the other two can. Uh, so the intention, the lifelong intention, is something which we hold to very, very strongly indeed. Uh, but we also allow in certain circumstances for the remarriage of divorced people. Is the matter now closed, Bishop, or will you continue talking about it? Oh, not at all. You see, this is the misunderstanding. Uh, this resolution, or the set of motions, as it were, uh, was not intended to close anything. It was actually intended to lay a foundation which says this is where the church is at at this present moment. This is what we believe. Nothing has changed. But on the other hand, to say there is a welcome at the door on the mat uh, for gay and lesbian people. And thirdly, to say, and we are going to enter into a process of listening. Uh, I called it kaling. Uh, we're going to enter into a process of kaling together, hearing each other and all of us are prepared to listen respectfully to what the other person may believe, no matter what view they're coming from, and we're prepared to, to, to be convinced, as it were, uh, if something about what we believe is not the case. The Bishop of Down and Dromore, the Right Reverend Harold Miller, speaking to Jerry McArdle. This Sunday, as part of Fela Namoy, the Sean O'Rea the Mass will be celebrated at Holy Trinity Abbey Church, Adair and Cor Coulet, originally assembled by Oreda, will take part. So instead of our usual signature tune, we leave you tonight with the offertory hymn from that Mass, Ecreast on Shield. 
Your comments, as always, are welcome. Our phone number is 01-208-2039. Our email address, godslot at rte.ie. And our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until next Friday at the same time, Rat JRF. <laughs>